stewarding the land with good fire, like tribes did for 20,000 years, whether that's from a lightning fire or actually starting fires with controlled burns. Living with beneficial fire is the holy grail. It's how these ecosystems cycle carbon, it's how they cycle nutrients, it's how they regenerate. And we've literally halted fire because we've had a 100% fire suppression policy for 130 years. There's a balance to be had there to make sure it's equitable, to make sure it's actually addressing fire risk, to make sure it's actually safeguarding the nation's carbon, water biodiversity. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also help us build a better world. I want to start today talking about a concept in business that we've all heard a lot about over the last couple of decades, disruption. We ascribe a lot of value these days to the disruptor, the creative visionary who recognizes an industry or market that has become stagnant and then develops a new idea or technology that improves the way that industry or market operates. In other words, someone who disrupts the status quo with something better. Over our lifetimes, technology has been the great disruptive force, and we've all experienced tons of examples. Typewriters gave way to computer word processors. Landline telephones gave way to cell phones, which in turn gave way to smartphones. LPs to CDs, video cassettes to DVDs, and now all of them to streaming platforms. In general, this is progress. Things become better, cheaper, and more efficient for customers. But the flip side of that progress is that many of the old technologies and the companies that relied on them don't make it. In a crowded market, to make space for the new and improved, the old must be cleared away. Those with a background in economics will probably recognize the idea of creative destruction. That's ultimately what disruption is. It's as much about revealing and pruning the ideas that have become obsolete as it is about generating new ones. It's the creative destructive process by which capitalism selects the best ideas and regenerates itself through innovation. Funnily enough, though, the economic application of this idea isn't what originally got me thinking about it for this week. I started thinking about it in a much more literal sense. See, the most common metaphor that's used to illustrate creative destruction is wildfire, the way that naturally occurring forest fires play an important role in ecosystems, burning away the dead growth from forests and grasslands, and creating room and seeding the soil with the nutrients for new growth. And that, the importance of good fire in a healthy natural cycle, is at the core of the company we're talking about today. But I also think it's quite a happy accident, the way that process is connected to disruption, in a business sense, because our guest today is a disruptor, with a stellar track record of changing the way that companies and industries in general think about sustainability. Alison Wolf is a trailblazer who spent two decades at the tip of the spear crafting positive impact strategy for big-time disruptors like eBay, Google, and Facebook, and who's now taking that role in her own right as the founder and CEO of Vibrant Planet, a technology startup harnessing machine learning to revolutionize forestry and land management and combat uncontrolled, climate-change-driven wildfires while recovering space for good fires that support flourishing ecosystems. Her work is so exciting and inspiring, and she's played a key part in the development of social impact in ESG space for so long that it's absolutely a thrill to have her join us today on the show. So let's jump into the conversation. So tell us a little bit about yourself, just where you're from originally. I am originally from Boulder, Colorado, born and raised. Did I tell you that I was raised in Colorado too? I was raised in Littleton and then Golden. Oh, I don't know if we talked about that. Yeah, I don't think we did either. 
Oh, how funny. Yeah. Born and raised in Boulder there through high school, went back, lived in what I think is the prettiest part of Colorado, if not the United States in Telluride Mm -hmm. for 15 years later in my career. I feel like folks that grow up in Colorado have a pretty healthy relationship with respect for kind of the world, the environment that we live in. It's that that mile high attitude. Yeah. Very much have a deep rooted history in that year round from Skiing in the winter to lots of camping and backpacking in the summer and hiking. I don't get back nearly enough. And I, every time I have a conversation with, with another Coloradan, it's a reminder of how much I loved growing up there and how much I miss the nature of the state. So you leave Colorado for school and end up in Southern California. And there you studied uh, business administration at USC. Did you have a sense even then that you wanted to be at this intersection of, of business and changing the world? Well, yes. And I actually dual majored in business and sociology, which in retrospect is sort of perfect because to to a large extent, what we're working on with wildfire risk and social license around addressing wildfire risk and forest health is a sociological problem or really a socio-ecological problem. So yeah, my time at USC very much shaped me. I, I went there, uh, even though Boulder is a pretty wealthy place to grow up, I did not grow up wealthy. Uh, so USC was the cheapest option for me because I had an academic scholarship there. And it was pretty eye-opening to land in South Central LA in the time of Rodney King riots and a lot of tension. Yeah, And as a sociology dual major, very much shaped me as a human being because I was it was compensatory in that program to volunteer at schools in the South Central LA area for most of the four years I was at school there. Yeah. And so I really got a first look at social justice, frontline community ideas, um, inequity in education and many, many other things. And then having that plus the business side of what I learned there has actually played out really well for what I do today. It feels like these days in business curriculum, there is a growing awareness and appreciation for social impact, for impact as as part of a smart business strategy. I'm curious if you felt that or experienced that at USC, or if you think that's evolved into kind of the business curriculum more recently. Oh, I think it's much more recent. Back then, it wasn't even a thought, I feel like. Later in my career, after I was at Netflix for several years, and then at a consulting firm where I caught the bug on the role corporations can play in having impact yeah. and started working with a lot of big tech Silicon Valley companies on how do they become a force for good and, you know, had a 20 year career exploring that some big wins and some, some big losses, but very much got inspired to build a company that could be an example of doing well by doing good. Yeah. Our company is a public benefit corporation And I feel like we have a shot at sort of setting a bar on public benefit corp impact and also doing very, very well financially with a sustainable business in SaaS. Let's start at the beginning of that journey with Netflix, because that's a pretty cool and unique place to have been, particularly at the formative period that you were there. I mean, you were there before it was the... (laughs) (laughs) Wise. We're wise, Allison. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Very, very wise. Um, so how did you land at Netflix before it was what we all know it as today on the streaming service? This was like, you know, 
many listeners might not even realize, like sending out red envelopes with DVDs in it. I mean, what was it like in yeah. the early days of Netflix? Yeah, it was a it was a wild ride. I got to Netflix. I had been at a little branding firm in San Francisco called Man Bites Dog, and one of my clients who is in the food and beverage industry was hired as the first VP of marketing at Netflix. And he said, "Hey, we're late to join the gold rush. This is in 1997." Wow. And I think this thing has merit, and you should jump in with me as my director of marketing. And so I, I decided to say yes to that. Five months later, that person went on to another startup, tried to take me with him again. I've always been a film buff. And Reed Hastings had come in recently to be the CEO. And I really liked Mark Randolph and the founding team as well, and just decided to stay. And so that's how I ended up reporting to Reed and leading marketing and brand for a couple of years and created the red envelope, spent a lot of time in the post office trying to figure out how to make it go faster when we had one little distribution center for the DVD rentals out of San Jose. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really interesting ride. And it was my entree into platforms, into product design, user experience design, which I got really involved in, narrative, naming things like the queue, like all, all of that stuff and the power of brand from inside a company versus as a design consultant. Right. So it was really fun to lead all that. And then also my first experience really selling a dream of what could be possible once fiber optic cable was laid, like this is this is how old I am. That was just starting yeah. to happen. Reed knew exactly how long it would take for the ability to stream movies over fiber optic cable, when that would happen, when you'd actually be able to have millions of people fast forwarding and interacting with a screen in that way <laughs> to actually make that possible. So, you know, I helped write the narrative that we went public on and uh, on that dream, trying to rally investors around that. So, which I've very much done over the last couple of years and, and we're working on at Vibrant Planet today. I love this idea of imagining and then communicating a dream for what could be. It's so important. I mean, obviously it's what great companies and great brands are built on, but I don't know that it's something that enough folks who are thinking about selling impact think about. I think so many of us spend so much time playing defense and thinking about what we're fighting against and not necessarily what we're champions for. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I totally agree with that. And it's funny, you know, with careers so often, it doesn't make sense while you're moving through your life. And then when you look back in retrospect, it's like, oh yeah, all that made perfect sense. Yeah. And really I've spent my career doing that. Um, and, and so, you know, really starting at Netflix, even before that in the branding world, it was that to some extent, but then working with eBay, Google, and Facebook um, to build coalitions around climate solutions and movements around like COP21, the Paris Climate Talks, you know, it, it was all that and, and really galvanizing people around an idea is sort of what I've made a living doing now, I realized for a very long time and now doing it in my own company. Yeah. But I agree. I think a lot of people are more reactive versus proactively galvanizing people around something new. Yeah. When we think about that interceding period between Netflix and then what you're doing now with Vibrant Planet, um, and you talk about kind of working with big technology and helping with some big wins on sustainability and, and also some big challenges. Talk to us a little bit about that era and what were some of the wins that most excited you that helped set the stage for what you have now been building? So a lot of that career on the, how do we tilt these global platforms towards goods started at eBay. 
Um, I had been a consultant at a consulting firm, helping with corporate strategy and broader topics and branding there. And then when I spun out on my own, got picked up by eBay to help them. They, they were always a force for good. Pyramidia, the founder, is sort of one of the original thinkers on that idea. Yeah. But they were sort of ready for a next iteration as they thought about things like sustainability and their, the potential of their philanthropic platform, eBay Giving Works, where sellers can donate a percentage of profit to a nonprofit of their choice. So a lot of my early work was working on those things. So uh, on eBay Giving Works, got into product design and through a change in the seller flow, was able to literally overnight shift the amount of philanthropy on that platform from a couple hundred million into $2 billion plus. And it was just a design change, making that easier for sellers to do and value propositions so a language on why, why to consider just donating a small percentage. And then, you know, the power of aggregation. I mean, it was incredible what that unlocked. Similarly on sustainability, did a big exploration, user experience design, uh, a lot of focus groups on you know, how do we make used cooler than new for things like clothing, you know, textiles, electronics, those kinds of things that are really, you know, having detrimental effects on our environment. And then how do we make it easy to find and buy and compel people into it? So if, if someone's considering an electric car, you can see that behavior in eBay Motors. How do you remove all the barriers to pulling the trigger on that purchase? So had a lot of fun just unlocking those kinds of things. And, you know, when you aggregate that across millions of people globally, it actually does make a difference. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, fast forwarding Google Green, which I helped create, that was Google's first narrative on all the amazing things Google has done. You know, they were the leader and still are on all things sustainability across food, transportation for their employees their buildings, their energy, everything, right? And so helping them tell that story and the goal of telling that story was so that other companies would copy them, which I thought was a very cool mission for, for that body of work. And, and who knows the ripple effect that that had. I think that what they did did get replicated a lot. And then, yeah, Facebook leveraging the power of that platform, touching citizens and consumers all over the world in a cultural moment like COP21 you know, how do you actually help people move from denialism and apathy to wanting to at least do something or not blocking things like policy change? Yeah. So a lot of fun experimentation on, on things like that. Starting at the like the very first of those examples, I've been thinking and talking about this a lot lately with folks, this notion that smart product design, it's not just about selling, it's about behavior change. It's about opening up the potential for massive societal-wide adoption of behavior that like could make a huge difference. We had a conversation with Matt Rogers from Mill Industries a couple weeks ago, who before that was the founder at Nest. And like we talked extensively about the idea that, you know, just like product design and product workflow that makes things so easy. Like I'm an evangelist for their company because I love, I love, love, love the compost product that they built. Yeah. But it's all about product design and, and people sometimes forget that the online experience is product design epitomized. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And so much is just contextualizing decisions, right? Like the example of removing barriers to buying an electric car, like what's on that person's mind that's keeping them from pulling the trigger. Yeah. And how do you give them just the right information or the visual cue that builds confidence? 
And to some extent, I mean, what, what we've built at Vibrant Planet is very much that a lot of that was a design problem. And how do you enable people to collaborate and communicate effectively? And there just had never been a cloud-based application to help with that. And, you know, it's got a very robust data structure under it and tons and tons of science. But the heart of it is good user experience design to help people talk to each other effectively. Yeah. I mean, thinking of good user experience design, like Netflix has made an a science of it in terms of like yes. knowing what I want to watch and figuring out what to what to deliver me when and making it as seamless and easy to adopt that behavior as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and next exactly. thing you know, you've watched the entire season of insert show name here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is binge wa- is binge watching good or bad? We <laughs> jury's out. Yeah. Yes. And and you know, then there's so there's the user experience design part of that. And then there's making the experience awesome, right? I mean, I still feel like Netflix is the best platform technologically to find something. It works really well compared to others. It's less glitchy and all those things. And that that's honestly thanks to my co-founder in Vibrant Planet, Neil Hunt, who was the VP of engineering and then um, became also the head of product for Netflix for 18 years. So he knows how to build a very high-function, well-designed product so we're very, very lucky to have him leading product at Vibrant Planet too. I want to jump into that in one second. I have one more question on just kind of that yeah. path there. Something you said a moment ago made me think of it. The time of Google, but also even thinking about, you know, all the tests at Facebook. I remember seven, eight years ago, people started to pay attention to the the environmental footprint, the carbon footprint of the cloud. And cloud being kind of this, all of a sudden, this relatively new and convenient technology, but it came with an externality that we all needed to, you know, incorporate into our calculus if we wanted to be sustainable in business. And it was, it's, I think, fascinating to me that those technology companies became pretty early adopters trying to build strategies for neutralizing their carbon footprint from the cloud. It just, it, it feels like that might have been the period that hearkened in this notion of corporate America kind of leading society into a more commercial awareness of sustainability. And curious, I mean, you were on the inside watching it and being a part of that change. Tell us about that. Yeah, the first example of that that I was involved in was at Google, where as part of the Google Green narrative, I worked with some of the internal mathematicians of Google to figure out how do we help people understand when you search, what is that cost in terms of carbon on the internet at an individual user level? And we came up with the glass of orange juice for a typical user day of Google just for search. And so, you know, again, kind of bringing it into a communications realm too, to help people grok what is a carbon footprint even yeah. and how do I even relate to it? So that was, that was one of the first things I was involved in on a communications side. And then we we did a similar uh, thing at Facebook. That one that one was a latte, <laughs> <laughs> coffee culture at, at Facebook. Um, so I think that that really helped people have a little bit of ownership in it. Mm-hmm. Um, other forces that came to be Greenpeace has played a role, you know, with the stick, mm-hmm. a very effective stick to move Google and then Facebook to do something about that footprint. I got to work with a man named Bill Weil at Google, who was the green energies are there. And then he was hired to oversee all things sustainability at Facebook. And so he and I 
did a ton of fun work together at both companies. And he was brought over to Facebook when Greenpeace did the Unfriend Coal campaign against Facebook. And so that was very motivating for the company to basically really get after it and and also compete with Google on how do we one up what Google did and and they did and Bill Bill is a true thought leader on on all things sustainability and energy data center efficiency all of those things so I, I feel very fortunate to have worked with him and learned so much in the process well and you said a moment ago you know Google Green and others you know they became the model that was copied yeah I think that's worth like digging into a little bit like that copy they, they've set the bar they've begun the dialogue in a lot of ways, they've brought a lot of corporate America and capital markets America and public policy America along with them. You know, what have you noticed, or as you look back at the individuals that you worked with that have catalyzed those moments, the companies themselves, any commonalities, any things that stick out as this helped enable and empower the tip of the spear, and also has helped create an environment that that empowers others to come along for the ride? Yeah, I mean, I'd say one commonality is. All of this stuff starts inside at all different levels. I mean, at eBay, that all started with a green team that's passionate about the environment and climate change that stood up and wanted to do more just with recycling and getting rid of water bottles and refrigerators in the kitchens, you know, all the little things, thinking about energy on campus. And then you have these kind of power zealots, I guess, for lack of a better word, like Bill Weil, who had the skills to to really move the needle on company footprint, company operations, and many others like him, you know, across these companies. You know, he was focused on the really big problem these companies have where most of their footprint in the world is data centers and energy use. Yeah. So, you know, that's where Bill and I worked together. I worked with the Open Compute Foundation with and separate from from Bill. That was a that was where Facebook did something really unique where they developed the most efficient data center in the world and then they open sourced the design where Google prior to that had been very closed and it was a little bit of like an IP secret even though they did want people to replicate the ethos of doing really good things they didn't open source the design to on how to do it so that was a really big thing and with that eBay launched Open Compute Foundation and then I came in to help build that into 300 companies, finally got Google in and some of the other big giants all competing on who could create the most efficient data center. And part of the deal was you had to open source your design. And then that started to take on building materials and all kinds of other things. So that's the kind of fun coalition building and where where competition can be such a good thing. And then Bill and I did the same thing on renewable energy where you know companies like Apple are doing awesome stuff on closed loop manufacturing and then also powering themselves with their own energy sources. But I really bought into Bill's strategy where, no, let's let's wield our power with a whole coalition of companies to green the American grid. Let, let's not just build our own power sources. Let's go green the grid together. And so that was another coalition that that Bill really put together. And then I supported on narrative and you know, movement building and that kind of thing called the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance uh, with several NGOs and and had some huge success going into coal-based states and saying, we're going to bring this much philanthropy, this many jobs. And by the way, we're going to build a whole bunch of additional renewable energy and, and, and we're going to change the grid in Texas and Tennessee and Kentucky. You know, it was just state after state. And it was, it was incredible to watch that happen. So, you know, I believe that 
that work was a little part of, if not a big part of tipping the cost of renewable energy to be cheaper than fossil fuels. I mean, I think that was a, a part of the tipping point. I mean, so yeah, we've seen the exponential supply and not just in general, but in particular places where it makes the biggest impact on the overall macroeconomic equation. Absolutely. This notion of open sourcing, I'm so excited about seeing it in so many different places. I, you know, Allbirds open sourced its shoe design as a way of, you know, building institutional knowledge around the entire industry for more sustainable product. And we've had material sciences companies come on. The guys that built Wonder Alpine did the same thing. They've open sourced their material sciences equations and the chemicals to help folks understand, like, here's how we can actually find other cleaner ways of creating the materials that we need to build the things we want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so it's so inspirational to see folks, you know, in all these other places kind of thinking collaboratively, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it's so necessary. Yeah. With what we face as humanity at this yeah. point. Okay, so that will tease us up for where we are now, which is, <laughs> let's hear about Vibrant Planet. Give us kind of the origin story. Where did the idea come from? So after the career I had in in Silicon Valley, working inside the big tech companies, I got very passionate about the nature-based climate solutions space. And a lot of that was through work I did with Paul Hawken when he launched Drawdown. I supported the launch of that, you know, helping with communications, social media, uh, some of those things. And um, the Drawdown framework and the research that they did really proved out sort of a gut instinct for me. And just for folks that don't know Drawdown, Drawdown was an attempt to rank order the top 100 solutions to climate change. And Drawdown itself is a term that was redefining the goal from you know temperature change or PPM in the atmosphere to the point at which Drawdown is the point at which carbon peaks. And we've actively changed things enough that, that it starts to actually come down. And there's also a a connotation too of the CO2 that we emit, all the greenhouse gases, but CO2 sits in the atmosphere for a hundred years. And so there's also a a big aspect of, we have to both stop fossil fuels, we have to stop the emissions as much as possible, and we have to pull carbon down from the atmosphere as fast as humanly possible through new technologies. So it's also a rank ordering of that specific piece of, of the climate solutions, not just the emission side. So nature-based climate solutions, there were 16 of them in the original 100 drawdown solutions analyzed that were land-based. So across regenerative ag, land management, land use, silviculture, all kinds of things. In combination, those 16 solutions blow away the impact uh, stopping fossil fuels. We have to do all of it. Right, right. (laughs) But it just put in context the importance of nature-based solutions. And then, of course... Nature-based solutions also give us all these, you know, what are called co-benefits of maintaining biodiversity, ensuring clean, reliable water, like all all of the other stuff that comes with well-managed land, essentially, and smart land use policy. So I had gotten very passionate about that space working with Paul and thought I would land in regenerative ag space. That was what I was sort of drawn to. In addition to some of the Silicon Valley companies, I ended up doing some consulting work with the Omidyar family at Omidyar Network with Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla when they launched Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, similar kind of movement building, strategic content kind of things. And then um, I was working with another tech founder who moved to the Truckee area in in Lake Tahoe and wanted to build like a Rocky Mountain Institute that would take on something unique in climate change. 
So as I was mapping the space and talking to locals about what they cared about and also global leaders in climate science and otherwise, Paradise, California burned. And then we had the 2018 fire season, which was the worst anyone could ever imagine in California and Australia until 2020 happened. Yeah. And so I started to dig hard into why is this happening so catastrophically and what does the future look like? And once I learned from both the land management and science world what the future looks like, I realized that we truly face catastrophic failure in 53% of land on earth that is fire adapted or fire dependent, which means those ecosystems evolved with fire that was generally low intensity for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And the combination of land use cutting forests down to build, you know, like the the Western American economy, we literally cut everything. There's only 7% old growth left. People don't realize how young our forests are here. And we did that in Europe and Australia before that. And then, you know, just more people living in forests and all these things coming to bear and then climate change on top of it. You know, we really fundamentally disrupted these ecosystems. And I, and I realized that we know what to do to intervene, to kind of fix the problem. If we don't move faster, we really do face catastrophic failure. So my hope to land in regenerative ag, I started to realize that ag land is also in big trouble if we don't fix this fire problem and this forest health problem. Yeah. So decided to swing hard and focus on that. So how would you elevator pitch a couple sentences, explain the current focus of Vibrant Planet? So because of the speed of conditions changing with wildfire, we also have drought-driven disease processes like bark beetles sweeping the Western U.S. and Canada. I mean, literally killing billions of trees. (laughs) Um, We have to figure out where to deploy resources, people, and money to build resilience so that that's basically increasing forest and other ecosystem function, grasslands and shrublands, basically getting these ecosystems back into a resilient state so that they can handle good fire again. And then ultimately living with beneficial fire is the holy grail and and really changing our relationship with nature and stewarding once again, like tribes did for 20,000 years stewarding the land with good fire, whether that's from a lightning fire and working that into land safely or actually starting fires with controlled burns, otherwise known as prescribed fire. What I found and why I wanted to focus on what we've built is that the current planning process is paper-based. It's one of the last industries that had not moved into the cloud. Going back to our design conversation, there's not a thing, there's not an application that is well-designed to help people navigate trade-offs of land use and land management. And there's a broad spectrum of strategies from more ecological to less ecological and more commercial when we think about cutting trees for, for different industries. And there's a balance to be had there, but there was no tool to do that. And fire is not observing boundaries. And so we have one, two million, three million acre fires that cross jurisdictions and that is forcing collaboration. But you can't collaborate in a paper-based Right. Five, 10 year process. There's opaqueness, there's no transparency to data and considerations and how trade offs are being considered. And so often, those paper based processes that can take five, 10 years end in litigation and then nothing happens. And so, once I understood that, I was like, oh, wow, if nothing happens, we're all in really deep shit, basically, because <laughs> our water is at risk. Yeah. You know, in a state like California, where, where fire is happening, 
really, really fast. I mean, it's exponential. If you think about five, 7% of forests burning each year, if you do the math, there's not much forest left in 10, 15 years. And and that's what we face. And California is 13% of global ag and 70% of water originates in forests. And so when the forests go, the water goes. And you think about ag workers in fields breathing heavily toxic smoke for many, many months on end in the Central Valley and people in affordable housing that don't have good HVAC systems. Like it's a really big, hairy problem. So that's really what our platform does is we are a collaborative, real-time, cloud-based scenario planning tool that helps natural resource managers, utilities, fire districts develop scenarios for land management plans with different types of treatments and intensities of treatments, treatments being mechanical thinning, like limbing up trees, pulling out trees to save forests. In many places in the West, we have two to 10 times the number of trees that would have been there historically if we hadn't disrupted these ecosystems. Where can we put prescribed fire safely to get fire back on lands that need fire to be healthy? It's how these ecosystems cycle carbon. It's how they cycle nutrients. It's how they regenerate. And we've literally halted fire because we've had 100% fire suppression policy for 130 years. The only fires that make it on the news, I mean, there's thousands of fires all the time. And it's only the big one, like 2% that become big enough to actually make news and become catastrophic. Right. So we actually need lots and lots more good fire all over the land so that these ecosystems are healthy. We've got the right number of trees per acre, all the things that beneficial fire does for these ecosystems. We've got to get it back on. So our system just helps figure out what do we do where that is ecologically appropriate and gets us the most bang for the buck in terms of avoided losses and forecasted ecosystem services benefit. So quantified carbon, water, biodiversity, recreation values and avoided air quality impacts. And without giving away the secret sauce, give us the, like the sense of the how. Like what, what are the tools and methodologies behind this sophisticated platform? Yeah, so one of the big things we've cracked that was very, very hard and took a lot of scientists and some of the top machine learning engineers in the world that we have on our team is a basically a trip data structure. So if you think about the data structure underlying like Lyft or Uber, there's this very fine scale like a person, a car, you know, down at that level to figure out strategically, how do we get that car to that person? Right. And so that data then aggregates up to help drive like recruitment campaigns to get enough drivers in a market, right? Like it all aggregates up to drive the strategy of a company like Lyft, Google maps, similarly, right? Like we can get you from point A to point B with very fine scale data and built infrastructure that that data structure did not exist in broader ecosystems. So we think it exists because of like Google Earth, you can fly in and see stuff. But for planning purposes, forests, grasslands, and shrublands operate in 3D. Right. So what the, the big thing we cracked was a 3D, essentially twin of vegetation structure across forests, grasslands, and, and shrublands at very, very fine scale where we can see individual trees and, and brush and things like that. And the reason that was important is in the kind of paper-based planning processes, scientists would provide recommendations on this is the kind of plan that would be ecological for this watershed area, like a million acres, two million acres. They would hand off that recommendation with data from Landsat, the USGS satellite system, 
And that data didn't downscale to where a siliculturist and a forester is doing the final planning and moving decisions in a watershed area to permit. So the forester would be like, thanks very much. I can't use your data. And they would do their own thing. And so (laughs) we had, you know, like the chief of the forest service is working with different data and recommendations than what's happening on the ground and vice versa. There was no way to hand off policy to the ground on what needed to happen to safeguard carbon or biodiversity or other things. So that, that tree up data structure was the big breakthrough for our space to actually enable information to travel across scales and to basically, you can imagine having thousands of projects that are permitted across the Western US or Mediterranean Europe, aggregating up elegantly because of that data structure to go to the strategic level of, I've got $20 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act you know, in, in USDA or DOI, where should I put that money to make sure it's equitable, to make sure it's actually addressing fire risk, to make sure it's actually safeguarding the nation's carbon water biodiversity. They did not have the way to do it. So that's what we've built. And it feels like, I've got so many follow-up questions, but the first, <laughs> it feels like this has incredible expansion opportunities into other nature-based solutions, like water, for example. I feel like once you've cracked the code, you can re-envision it potentially for like, ocean management or water systems management equally impactfully. So I'm curious how you're looking at kind of the expansion opportunities for um, the underlying data science, the underlying platform, the, the app itself. Yeah. So what we've started to build is a capability around data structures and making sure that things that have value in landscapes are represented with the best possible data and making sure that that data is turned into information that can help make decisions or monitor decisions. And so that is a real, that's now a a finely tuned skill set that we have honed. And then there's the decision support side of this as well. And the ability to create scenarios, whether you're dealing with any of the things you just talked about. So right now we're in land management, which has the, the, you know, water biodiversity considerations in it, of course, Um, But when you think about water management, when you think about land use planning, where should we build? Where should we not build? How do we build? Like all of those things. We now have really mad skills in developing decision support capabilities that enable people to understand trade-offs, weigh trade-offs collaboratively, and move to consensus. You kind of gave the example of the IRA and making sure that that money is most efficiently or equitably or impactfully deployed. I'm curious, I mean, it feels like there's certainly been a lot of attention in the public policy realm on nature-based solutions. You've got a lot of resources coming to sustainability and kind of climate solutions from IRA and IIJA. How are you guys looking at kind of that potential impact on the marketplace? You know, I feel like these funds are kind of a a potential boon in a really great way for your next phase of growth. Yeah, we are in this unprecedented moment here in the U.S. And to some extent in Europe and others, Australia, anywhere there's fire, there's a lot of funding moving to this to this problem to mitigate risk. Yeah. So there's this moment where we have five-ish years to leverage unprecedented federal funding to catalyze or to stand up a sustained private sector and true public-private partnership to work with government, the private sector and government working together. Because, you know, when you think about the Western U.S. and many other places in the world, in the Western U.S., 
40 to 60% of the land mass is federal. Yeah. So you have to engage them. And it's land we all care about, right? That's the land we play in. It's where we ski and mountain bike and hike. So, you know, we have a concerted interest in, in those lands. So that sector has to be engaged. But we have this moment where unless we stand up a private sector that can sustain itself for, we, we need thousands of workers. We need to recruit a whole new generation of youth into forestry science, small businesses that are standing up like mechanical thinning machine businesses and sawmills and all kinds of things to do something with all the biomass that's going to come out. It's an exciting opportunity, but it all has to happen very, very, very fast now. Um, And luckily this government funding is, is a huge catalyst that, you know, we don't want to waste. Yeah. It seems inherent in your entire mission as a public benefit corporation in particular, but just even if you weren't that, if you were just pursuing this business opportunity, it's purpose native, like inherent in it is doing something good for the world, for the society, for the country and for the environment. And certainly aligns perfectly with your entire career. I'm curious as you think about where we are in kind of business in corporate America right now, this positive focus in general on the opportunity to do good and do well in that alignment and how you, you know, having been a part of shaping that in some of the more important companies in the last couple of decades, how do you think about where we are now and how do you think we can continue to, to push as individuals, employees and, and entrepreneurs and, and leaders of companies to do good and do well? So, you know, in the last few years, public benefit corporation structures came to be there's B Corp certification that people are more familiar with. And then there's the legal structure. And sometimes you can be both. So we set up legally as a public benefit corporation, which means we have to report not just on shareholder value and have, have financial value, but, but equally environmental and social value. So I feel like our company and others like us that have, have set up public benefit corps from the start, we're going to pave a new path that proves that business can be a force for good. So a lot of the work I did as a advisor or from inside Silicon Valley companies, I feel like we're starting from scratch, us and, and other companies where we can really, really do this for real from, from the beginning. Like the whole business model for us inherently has impact because we monitor across reducing risk and unlocking ecosystem services. We can really easily report on across many, many customers. Like what kind of impact are we actually having? We'll, we'll have that information because it's core to our business. So I'm excited about the, this new wave. There's a bunch of us in all different sectors that um, are experimenting with this new way of doing business in the world. And I think it's absolutely necessary for, I mean, it literally comes down to human survival. So I'm really proud with what we've done so far and, and hope to inspire others to follow suit a little bit you know, back to what Google was trying to do. I hope a bunch of people copy us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, both the entrepreneur's journey, but especially I think the impact entrepreneur's journey requires a, a dose of perhaps unrealistic optimism at times to to keep pushing through. <laughs> and you even think about, you know, just we're recording the week that COP28 ended and, you know, coming out of big multilateral events like that, there's a... Not all the headlines are positive and uplifting and, and lead us to believe we can and should push for this sustainable future. I'm curious how you retain that that optimism that's required, I think, that that hope that's required to build a company in in a space like this, in an environment like this, in an, in an age like this. How do you stay hopeful? 
Good question. I'm not hopeful every day. Yeah, that's <laughs> but fair. Worth, but for the most part, yes, I am. I am one of the optimists of our company. I thought a lot about this just watching COP and having, I, I commented recently on a BBC piece, you know, observations of COP28. Um, for a while there, it was pretty disheartening. We actually landed in okay place, I would say. Surprisingly, I didn't, I didn't think we would get there this year. But, you know, I think that Paul, and another Paul Hawken effort or book was Blessed Unrest. And he laid out this really interesting premise where there's a whole system of us in, in the private sector, NGO sector across the world that is a little bit like an immune system across the planet. And to some extent, I feel like there's there's companies like ours that are that are sort of still in stealth mode, working on something really, really big that's not even on the solution radar yet. Right. And how impactful it's going to be. Like, I mean, to put it in perspective, you know, Canada's fires this year tripled that country's impact. California's wildfires in 2020, that really horrible season, released the equivalent emissions of 27 million cars driving 24-7 for an entire year. If we act fast on what we know, like our system is all about scaling up what we already know. And a lot of that knowledge is tribal knowledge. It's indigenous knowledge to manage with beneficial fire. If we actually do it, if we do what we know works fast enough, th- those releases won't happen. And those, you know, we I think there was an article yesterday or this morning that that they're discovering forests actually store 30% more carbon than anyone knew. And there's new science that that sees that now. So, you know, I've said this multiple times. If we can actually help these fire-prone forests and also the Amazon, which is an entirely different problem where we just need to leave the damn forest alone so it does its thing. But if we if we keep these ecosystems standing, and again, we know how, they'll help us get through climate change. I mean, they are the biggest solution we have right in front of us, all around us, and, and we know what to do. So that keeps that keeps me really hopeful. And then I also just see this this congealing of the space where, you know, even when I came into the space five six years ago, there was a real chasm between the heroism of firefighting and the land management world which is like the really slow, hard, fundamental change to get to resilience. Everybody's on the same page now, just a few years later. And and everybody has the same goal on community and, and wildland resilience and what that's going to take. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm really hopeful, at least in our space, that there's um, a, a movement happening in a real community that has has been built over the last few years, working arm in arm to, to get this stuff done. And I think that's happening in other sectors as well with oceans and ag and, and various others. So I, I that's what keeps me excited and hopeful. I want to ask one other kind of question that jumped out as you were talking to us about the, the various forms of organizations that are engaged in this work. You know, you're in a unique position. You've got a strong background in the heart and soul of sustainability and you know, the environmental components and nature-based solutions, but also you've spent so much time in the technology ecosystem. And, and in particular, I mean, I, I am kind of curious... You, you don't see a lot of women leading companies in the AI space. Talk to us about kind of in all the tables that you sit at and all the rooms you sit in, how you kind of juggle those roles, those various constituencies, and and do so kind of sometimes in a in a unique way as kind of the one woman leader standing up and saying, "Hey, this is not a one man show, guys. Like, let's make this table equitable for all of us." What's been really interesting is I operate at two very male driven worlds: forestry and technology and AI. So it's like a double whammy. Yeah. But it's 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 honestly been 
mostly an advantage for us. I think certainly in the funding world, you know, we're different because of that. And we've got a large group of women leaders on our team as well. I also have grown confident in my ability to bring a feminine perspective into this space. And I think it's needed. I mean, you hear in the zeitgeist, like this is the time of kind of feminine rising of women rising, right? Like the women are going to save the planet. You hear that all over the place. The Dalai Lama, I think there's an awesome <laughs> quote about that. So I don't know. I've, I've, I feel like I am holding that and I read about it and try to get a lot of inspiration from other women and people like Brene Brown and, and others. And that willingness, you know, we're, we're solving really, really hard problems. And, you know, there's tension in my team, like having scientists and engineers work together, they speak different languages and they're on, they, they work on different timescales and there's friction. And so trying to lead from a place of vulnerability and helping people see each other and respect each other's perspectives. A lot of those are feminine qualities you know, operating from a place of compassion and empathy is more of a female um, way of being and thinking. And so doing my best from inside my team, as well as many other women leaders in Vibrant Planet, uh, working on that, we talk about it. We're trying to bring a culture around it and also not being afraid to bring in indigenous perspectives. That's really, really important in our space. And I think to, to a little bit of extent, I hope this doesn't seem unfair to people listening, but I do think women are a little more bold on things like that and, and respecting those types of points of view. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I'm on a mission to try to make sure that our system over time is infused with traditional ecological knowledge. And, you know, again, like we our our goal is ultimately to manage land like tribes did for 20,000 years. That that's what we're all shooting for is to live with fire safely and to get fire back into these systems that need it ecologically, because without good fire, they fail. And people don't realize that we just think of fire as bad, but fire is good in half of land on earth. And so we have to figure out how to live well with fire. And I think there's a lot to embrace in, I guess, in the feminine that some, some of the women that are leading in the tribal realm are people like Margot Robbins is leading multiple tribes in an effort to teach people how to burn land. Yeah. And, and bring cultural fire back. There's a lot of women leaders in that that I'm you know I'm, I'm connected to and hope to support with our with our system. Awesome. There's something really poetic about bringing AI or utilizing AI to remind us how tribes spent twenty thousand years maintaining and protecting the forest in a way that you know it's just that there's something so cool about that juxtaposition of contemporary technology teaching us how. It, or helping us, empowering us to do it like they've done it forever, isn't it? I don't know. I think it's kind of a cool contrast in in practice. It is. There's a, there's a lot of really cool dynamics happening in this space. Where yeah. recently there was a National Wildfire Commission report, for example, which was a, a set of recommendations that so a commission was formed a couple of years ago in the wake of the wildfire crisis of 2020, and they were asked to put together recommendations for Congress to drive appropriations to deal with this wildfire crisis. And there's a lot of powerful women on that commission. And it also points head on to the need for more good fire on the land and yeah. not being afraid to say it. Yeah, I think when I first got into this, people, there's such a deep fear of fire right now. And I've seen this just in the last few months, even, and, and that 
you know, to some extent culminating in that report, being willing to say we need more good fire and yeah. just knowing there's so many women at the heart of how that's going to happen. It's really, really cool. And, and indigenous tribes, like it, they've done it right all along. We know that, right? I mean, empowering indigenous peoples worldwide, whether we're in the Western United States or the Amazon or the aboriginals of Australia, they know how to live with this land. And so much of this is about changing how we relate to our own ecosystems. We forget we're part of our own ecosystems. Yeah. And that that's a tribal perspective. And so many tribal leaders are women. Awesome. I'm so excited to, to shine the spotlight on what you guys are doing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a super fun conversation. Once more, my biggest thanks to Alison Wolf for joining us on the podcast today. Not only is it amazing learning from an insider about the way that some of the real OG corporate sustainability efforts developed, but I'm also just so inspired by her vision of bringing cutting-edge AI technology to bear in recovering ancient indigenous knowledges of how to manage our lands and forests in balance with regenerative natural cycles. It's really exciting, and I'm really looking forward to following where Vibrant Planet goes from here. If you'd also like to keep up with Vibrant Planet, learn more about the technology and products, or explore career opportunities with them, you can visit their website at vibrantplanet.net. We'll also have a link in the show notes for you. You can also follow Allison on LinkedIn at Allison Wolf. That's Wolf with two Fs. For any questions, comments, or ideas sparked by today's conversation, or if you have a great idea for a future conversation, please email us at cic at consensus-digital.com. That's cic at consensus-digital.com. Drop us a line with what you thought about today's show. We'd love you to hear feedback. You can also connect with me directly on LinkedIn and threads at CKGone. That's at C-K-G-O-N-E. And as always, if you like the show, please give us a follow, a like, or leave a review wherever you listen. It really helps us grow our reach and continue bringing you more awesome conversations with business leaders that you want to hear from. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week with a brand new conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted and executive produced by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode was produced by Will Gatchell and Jeff Rock with editing from the good folks at Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to the Consensus team, including creative director Kate Tucker, Greg Hurgle on research, and Patrick Gallagher on strategy. Consensus in Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume.